let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for our opportunity to come together, to pray together, to open the scriptures, to encourage one another, to look into what you have said through the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And we thank you, Lord, for your provisions and everything that we need. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, the plan here. I want to finish fellowship, transition into the Lord's Supper, finish the Lord's Supper, and I've decided that as soon as we're done with this, that'll be the end of teaching on means of grace, and I'm going to teach through Acts. I've already done chapter 1 and 2 when we were at the old church. Starting in chapter 3, I'm going to teach through the book of Acts. That's the only book of the New Testament that I haven't taught through in my lifetime of preaching and teaching. Certainly studied it, but we've got to finish the job here. So it'll be Acts. Today, we're continuing on the topic of fellowship. And we will probably spend a little time in 1 Corinthians 10. But first, we want to go to Philippians 2, verses 1 and 2. Philippians 2, 1 and 2. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Now here we have the phrase fellowship of the spirit. Throughout the history of the church from the day of Pentecost forward to this very day, Christians have been hated and persecuted because they don't fit in to the sinful, rebellious world that won't serve God. And so since we are hated by the world, we most assuredly need one another, right? So this encouragement and consolation of Christian love goes along with the fellowship of the Spirit. Christians share both sufferings and comfort as they look to Christ and are in Christ in the midst of suffering. Here is the law of Christ, that we love one another. Paul said, make my joy complete. This in the Greek is in the imperative. I always circle and mark out imperatives when I find them and let you know that they're there. That means it's a command or a strong admonition from God. Okay, so complete my joy is imperative. So love gives us consolation and solace, both God's love for us and our love for one another. Those who are Christ have the Holy Spirit and thus common spiritual life. This is a work of God. We are united by what God has done for us through the gospel in Christ. 
Then it goes on and says, being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. This all is grounded in the gospel itself. I am and have been for many years fully convinced that the gospel is the ground of Christian unity. And that if we proclaim the gospel, share the gospel, believe the gospel, trust the gospel, that this will bring us together. And if there's something going on in our hearts that won't tolerate the gospel, then we know it's not from God. The Holy Spirit always causes us to confess Christ. Another passage on this. Uh, Norm, would you look up Philippians 1.27 and then I'll have Rich bring you the mic. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in the spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Amen. Do you see what Christian unity looks like? Striving together for the faith of the gospel? Yes, Luann. Here comes the mic. I was just going to make a comment. Norm shared a wonderful um, DVD series on the Holy Spirit that Sinclair Ferguson does. And, you know, one of the points that he makes in one of the early sessions, um, talking about the person of the Holy Spirit, but this unity that, and he asked the question, how many Holy Spirits are there? And it kind of seems like the obvious, you know, well, there's one. And then he said, so the same Holy Spirit that walked so closely with Christ and took him through his baptism, took him through the wilderness, took him through his ministry, is the same Holy Spirit that each one of us have. And it, you know, so that's why our unity is so tight and our and like it says, um, intent on the one purpose, the gospel, because it is that same Holy Spirit that walked with Jesus Christ that is shared with us. And I just thought, found that very, very powerful. Amen. And exactly. Well, thank you, Steve. We uh, and the scriptures are inspired by the Holy Spirit. So if we accurately and forthrightly teach the scriptures. We are cooperating with what God is using to change us, okay? Each one of us as a Christian and us corporately. And so that's why the Bible needs to be taught forthrightly and clearly. So therefore, the Holy Spirit creates Christian fellowship. And that fellowship is most... Assuredly, a means of grace because God changes us corporately. Now, how is it that this is the case? We're going to 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit, for the body is not one member, but many. So there we have, again, the idea 
of the primacy of the work of the Holy Spirit in the church. Notice the unity here, for by one spirit we were all baptized. Now, the baptism into the body of Christ happens at conversion. This is not a second blessing. It's not a further work of grace that's true for some Christians, but not for others. But all Christians are baptized by one spirit into one body. All right? Does anybody want to discuss that? Well, it doesn't mean the Holy Spirit is just one out of seven. It means the Holy Spirit in his fullness. Eric will point that out. Oh, the question was, what about the seven spirits in the Holy Spirit? And it, it, it's uh, Eric, when he teaches through Revelation, will make it clear that this means the Holy Spirit in his fullness. So we're baptized into one body. So here we, in a context of the teaching on the gifts of the Spirit, we have a verse about Christian unity. So there's a diversity of gifts, but we're all unified because we're baptized into one body. So this shows both unity and diversity. We're un- we have unity in our common experience of the Spirit of God making us one, but diversity of callings and gifts. The body here is the church. So here is a clear verse about being baptized by the Holy Spirit. Gordon Fee says this in his excellent commentary in 1 Corinthians. What makes the Corinthians one is their common experience of the Spirit. The very Spirit responsible for and manifested in the great diversity just argued for in verses 4 through 11. For Paul, the reception of the Spirit is the sine qua non of Christian life. That sine qua non is a Latin phrase. means without which not. So either you were baptized into one body by one spirit or you're not a Christian. That's what that means. That's what Dr. Fee is saying. And ecumenism cannot possibly create the unity of the spirit. This is why I've never seen any reason to get involved with national associations. I don't see any reason for it whatsoever. Because, you know, there's evangelicals and Catholics together. Remember that? And there's always some push for an ecumenical group that's going to create a visible church that's unified, which never actually happens. One thing that happens is some people go back to Rome, but what you don't see is what Paul's talking about here, actual unity of the body. Now, let me quote Fee to that end. Paul saw the spirit as the key to everything in the Christian life. It seems mandatory that such prevail again if there's to be effective Christianity in our day. But let the one who says that not force his or her own brand of spiritual unity on the church as simply another human machination. Our desperate need is for a sovereign work of the Spirit 
to do among us what all our programmed unity cannot. There's no use putting time, money, and effort in the ecumenism because it never can and never will produce the unity of the faith. But this is what God does through the gospel. And so, therefore, gospel preaching is what God uses to bring us into fellowship of the spirit and the unity of the faith. Any questions or comment? Uh, Okay. Could you possibly say that the seven spirits that uh, Dan brought up is merely just seven perspectives on the spirit? Yeah, uh, Eric, earlier somebody asked about the seven spirits in Revelation. Do you want to comment? Yeah, you know, it's an allusion back to the book of Zechariah. It really has to do with the fullness of the spirit. So it doesn't indicate that there's um, multiple Holy Spirits, but it has to do with the fullness of the spirit um, in the activity there. So, yeah, it's just the fullness of the spirit. And you'll see oftentimes seven will have a reference to that, especially in Zechariah and the book of Revelation. So. Rich, while, you, while you're running the mic around, could you look up Ephesians 4, 3 and 4? And I'll make a point here that is, I think, very important. Ephesians 4, 3 and 4. All right, Ephesians 4, 3 and 4. Um, Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. Right. Now, let me explain how I believe this is, works, and I've taught this for 20, 30 years, frankly. The unity of the Spirit that's mentioned in Ephesians 4 and verse 3, and this 1 Corinthians 12, 13, one Spirit baptized into one body, is what God does through conversion. God creates the unity of the Spirit by saving people and putting them into the body. Now, what Ephesians is doing, it says to be diligent to preserve that. God creates it. It's our job to preserve it. There's your command. Preserve what God's done through the Spirit. Now, as I said, the Holy Spirit inspired the scriptures, so the more diligent we are in studying, teaching, and submitting to scripture, the more unity we'll have. Does that make sense? All right, so Christian fellowship was created on the day of Pentecost when the first church came into existence through a sovereign work of the Holy Spirit through the gospel. That makes us one. That's how we have fellowship. That's how we're all baptized into one body. We must be diligent to preserve that. Now, true fellowship, I'm saying here, also means obeying the law of Christ. We've gone to great effort at Gospel of Grace Fellowship to show that Jesus Christ speaks for God. You wouldn't think you'd have to do that, frankly. But you do. And I was honored to speak at Freedom Works about a week ago, and I was on this topic, how God speaks. And we 
went through the different scriptures pointing ultimately to Christ as the one Moses predicted who would speak for God. Christ appointed apostles and anointed them and inspired them, and they speak for God. That all ended with the death of the last of the apostles that were personally appointed by Christ. Now, when Christ does speak for God, he commands us to love one another. Okay? Inasmuch as under Moses, the summary of the law is that we should love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. Now, Jesus reiterated that and affirmed that that really was a summary of the whole law. And he gave parables to illustrate this, and he gave teaching to illustrate this, and we have teachings in the New Testament to reinforce for us that as far as this unity of the Spirit, we are to love Christ and bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. The command to love reigns supreme under both the Old and New Covenants. So it says in Galatians 6 and verse 2, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Now you see that in Acts 2, as the early church gathered, they took care of one another. Luke goes to great lengths to make that point. And we'll see that as I begin teaching through Acts. But let's look at 1 John 3 in verse 23. This is his commandment that we believe in the name of, of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. So we're commanded by Christ to love one another. And we have imperatives here. Bear one another's burdens is an imperative. 1 John 4, 21. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. I'm going to quote Dr. Marshall from the International Commentary in the New Testament, who says, having spoken of the need to obey God's commands, John now expresses clearly what this means. He sums up the commands as one command, which is then expressed as having two parts. In this way, the fundamental unity of the two parts is made quite clear. It is possible for the readers of 1 John to gain the impression that the sum total of Christianity is to love one another and hence claim that anybody who shows love is a Christian. That's theological liberalism, right? This misunderstanding would be avoided if sufficient attention was paid to this key verse which shows that belief and love go together and that neither is sufficient without the other. So not only is it necessary that we're loving, but that our beliefs are in keeping with the truth revealed under the new covenant in the scriptures. So we, yes, uh, Rich, back to uh, Brian. Yeah, well... Today, he, today we were, we'll let him. 
I was just saying to Bob this morning that that's the great thing about the body of Christ is that we bear one another's burdens. If somebody gets ill or something happens to an individual within the body, you may have a few loved ones within your own home that care about what happens to you. At your work environment, you might have a handful of people. So in reality, there's not a whole lot of people around that really care about what happens to you. But when you are in the body of Christ, you have this whole group of people that care about you. And it's a, uh, it's, it's a good thing, and it strengthens us as uh, believers. Amen. Thank you, Brian. Now we want to look at 2 Corinthians 6.14. 2 Corinthians 6.14. Now we saw this also in Acts, and I have a passage from Acts here. But my heading is true fellowship means separating from darkness. Conversion is described as being called from darkness into light and from the dominion of Satan to God. It says here, do not be bound together with unbelievers for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness? The implied answer is none. Do not be is an imperative in the Greek. It's a command from God. And it's true that when we're converted, we're baptized by one spirit into one body that were unified in the gospel, but it also creates a change so that we don't have the same relationship with the rebellious, sinful world that we were in. We're in the world, but we're not of it. But it's not the same anymore. Things certainly changed for me when I was converted because I was working with the same guys who heard me as a blasphemer, and then I became a Christian. Luann, bring, uh, you, could you bring Luann to Mike? So can an analogy be made between um, God requiring Israel to separate from the nations to Christians separating from the world? Yeah, that's absolutely true. Because Paul quotes uh, a passage from the Old Testament when he teaches separation. Come out from among them and be separate. Because Israel in Canaan, was under great temptation to partake of the practices of the Canaanites. There's a lot of wickedness and sensuality in pagan religious practice, and Christians throughout the history of the church have been tempted to merge Christianity with paganism. And it's a bad thing, and we need to be on our guard. I'm going to talk about that a little bit this morning. Uh, I, I think we're going to get there. I brought with me something I found at a used bookstore. It's the Hindu scriptures. So, now, so Bhagavad Gita. And I'll show you why God forbids some of these practices that now you hear in many churches because there's too much compromise with the world. 
in the world's religions. Okay, and I'll show you that. Now, I'll read a passage. Paul. Uh, just back to 2 Corinthians 6, 14 there. Uh, the words bound, partnership, fellowship, um, seems to be setting up uh, that you don't want to be uh, having that direct connect with sin. However, association, we're called to be witnesses in the world around us. Yeah. So we're, we're, it's not calling us to monkishness. Exactly. That, the, how that works has been discussed as long as there's been Christians. Okay. What does that mean? Now, some think, well, join a, actually, the real early desert fathers went out in the wilderness and didn't associate with anybody, not even other Christians. But that's certainly not God's will. And then some are cloistered in monasteries away from everybody else. But I think that's not right either because it's the witness of Christians that bring the gospel into the lives of the people around us. But on the other hand, in the process of the witness of Christians in the world, there is a danger that we ourselves become of the world. In other words, who's influencing whom? Is that correct, grammar? Thank you. I thought it was. Okay, so what's the balance here? I think that when we go to work, we're usually working with many people who aren't Christians. And that's where our witness happens. But there's always a danger that we start practicing things the world practices and thinking things the world thinks. And then Christianity becomes so sullied that it has no real distinction anyhow. It's just a subset of the world. Then it's salt that's lost its savor and it's worthless to be tossed out and trampled underfoot. Rich. That sounds like the uh, seeker-sensitive church. You know, when they try to become like the world to attract the world so they can go out and go out and get them saved by giving them, you know, what they want to hear. Well, yeah, and I wrote, I've written about that and debated that for years because I don't believe that that's what gospel preaching means. The gospel calls us out from the dominion of Satan to God, out of darkness and into light. Christ is light, and the real issue is whether we love light or darkness. Here's some passages 1 Peter 2.9, you might want to jot some of these down. I'll, I'll read a few, so for the sake of time. 1 Peter 2.9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we are called from darkness into light. Conversion is stepping out of spiritual darkness into light. The light of truth, the light of the gospel. Thank you, Lord. John 3.19. John 3.19. This is the judgment. 
that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. Jesus is the one who is the light. John 8, 12. Then Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. How do we come to that light? John 12, 46, I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. Jesus Christ is an object of our faith. Believing in him is to be in the light. Now notice Acts 2 and verse 40 on our screen here. Now, when Peter was preaching, he said, be safe from this perverse generation. So there was a separation. Now, this was a big deal for the early church, these early Jewish Christians. Because this was at the feast. It was glorious. There was pageantry. There was all of the, the smells and bells and sensual things going on. And if they do believe the gospel and they're saved from the Jewish leadership, the perverse generation, they're just going to gather with other Christians and break bread and pray and hear the apostles' teaching. Imagine this little bitty gathering of Christians that doesn't look like much and this glorious feast that's going on. And Peter says, no, get saved from that, come to this. And that's, in a sense, what conversion looks like. We are stepping out of what may be popular, but it's not the light of God. Let me quote uh, Dr. Barnett on 2 Corinthians 6.14. I've got a number, number of quotes. I was just looking for the right one here. It says here, rather the meaning of unbelievers must be determined by other uses of that word where it chiefly occurs, namely within Paul's two Corinthian letters. Such uses make it clear that the unbelievers were unconverted Gentiles who inhabit the dark world of idolatry and immorality in such a city as Corinth, blinded people who were under the sway of the God of this world. The more sensual and attractive the world around us becomes, the greater the danger of compromise. Okay, we live in a day in which all of the glitter and hope and glory that this world has to offer gets piped into everyone's life all the time. But that doesn't mean we can't fellowship with Christ and one another, that we can't believe only the truth of the gospel, that we cannot resist the temptation to be bound together with unbelievers. So this is an important issue. We go to the next slide. Again, I I pull this up here because it has to do with fellowship, koinonia. 1 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9 who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
Now, remember in 1 Corinthians 12, it said by one spirit, we're all baptized into one body. Here in 1 Corinthians 1, it says we're called into fellowship. The same thing is happening. We're baptized by one spirit into one body. And at that point, we're also called into fellowship with Christ and his people. We fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. And when we die, we go to see him. We'll be with him. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Now, on Wednesday night, Steve Ziff's been talking about calling. He did this last week. Both the external call and the internal call. Which one do you think this is? Internal. Yeah, this is the effectual call. It's true of those who also call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. Do you believe that? Amen. Nancy, could you look up 1 Thessalonians 3.13? Daniel, could you look up 2 Thessalonians 2.13? And 14. We, I want both, 13 and 14. Okay, 1 Thessalonians 3.13. So that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Yeah, there's a theme of holiness. Holiness before God, the coming of the Lord with his holy ones. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14, Daniel, when you find it. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith and truth. It was for this he called you through, your, through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, so there's this internal or effectual call that brings us into true fellowship. So the calling of God calls us into fellowship with Christ and his people. That's what koinonia is all about. It's about being separated from the world, walking in the light, being joined to God's people, having our sins forgiven, having the hope of glory, and being totally new creatures in Christ. You know what I've been doing to help me teach in a way that I think would be the most helpful to the most people. I think about what I did here, and some of which was very good and some wasn't, and what I needed to hear when I was a brand new Christian, okay? And I, at that time, had such a hunger for good, solid, true teaching. I think I mentioned before, Reverend Smith, who was teaching the Gospel of John, magnificently. And I know that people that are Christians are hungry for true, solid Bible teaching and understanding the basics of the Christian life. So I teach these things knowing this is what we need. And I know that because they're inspired by the Holy Spirit. So we're called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ. Now, let's move forward now, having established what Christian fellowship is. 
and what it is not. It's not fellowship with the world. Let's go forward to 1 Corinthians 10, 16, and 17. Now, this is now connecting Christian fellowship with the breaking of bread and the Lord's Supper. And then we'll transition into that. And as I said, and then when I finish, that'll be the end of the teaching on means of grace. And we'll move forward into the book of Acts. 1 Corinthians 10, 16 and 17. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. So Paul's interest and concern here is with fellowship, the terms sharing and uh, in this section, see, I have them in red up there on my PowerPoint. In the Greek, that says koinonia, fellowship. So we have a fellowship in the blood, fellowship in the body, and the one body would be us corporately as Christians together in the one body. Now, this is repeating what I've shown you from passage after passage after passage. I don't think this teaching is doubtable. You can doubt whether you want to believe the Bible, but you can't doubt that the Bible teaches it. All right? Now, this is not talking about some high church liturgy, which they didn't even have in the first century. It's talking about being called into one body through the gospel based on what Christ has done for us. So the gospel is creating this unity when it's believed, and we're responsible to preserve it through our fellowship and our breaking of bread. I'm going to quote Gordon Fee a few times. What he argues is that there is something inherent in the nature of of the Christian meal that makes participation in the other absolutely incompatible. There's something he describes as koinonia. That's what sharing is there, koinonia, fellowship. Now we're going to be talking here about why we can't go practice what the pagans practice. In Corinth, there was a big temptation to go fellowship with the world. Just like Israel was tempted in Canaan to go in and do what the Canaanites did, which was forbidden. So here, Paul in this section forbids that we should go over and fellowship with the world at one and the same time that we fellowship with Christ and one another. Does that make sense? Quoting Fee again, the fellowship therefore was most likely a celebration of their common life in Christ based on the new covenant in his blood that had previously bound them together in union with Christ by his spirit. But while their fellowship was with one another, its basis and focus were in Christ, his death, 
and resurrection. Now notice it talks about the cup of blessing. As I said, next week I'll I'll do the Lord's Supper from Matthew and then we'll be done with means of grace and I'm going to teach verse by verse through Acts. And uh, I'll do that for a while and then hopefully the Lord will return. (laughs) (laughs) Acts is the only book of the New Testament I haven't taught through verse by verse. But I'm not opposed to doing any one of them twice. Let me go to another slide, and I'm going to give you some really strong applications. 1 Corinthians 10, 18, and 19. Look at the nation of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices shares in the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? The word sharers, by the way, is koinonos, from where we get koinonia. So we have an analogy from the sacred meals in Israel. The background for this is likely, according to Gordon Fee, Deuteronomy 14, 22 through 27, where they're commanded to keep the sacred meal. Now, earlier... In 1 Corinthians, Paul was talking about, well, you have knowledge. Okay, so some people say, I know that there's only one God. I know that the idol is really nothing. So therefore, I'm going to go to the idol festival and eat the idol food. But in my mind, I know it's nothing. That would be like the antinomians rebuked in 1 John and elsewhere, who say the only thing important is what's spiritual, so anything done in the body doesn't count. So then they boil over into every kind of evil because it doesn't count. Well, the Bible gives no comfort to anybody. Yeah, it will count. It'll count on the day of judgment when the Lord said, depart from me, I'll never, I didn't know you. I never knew you. You're not building on the rock. And so similarly, we have an argument here from some of the libertines in Corinth that the idol is nothing. Therefore, things done in association with the idol is really nothing. And therefore, it won't hurt if I go do it. Now, you might ask a question. Why exactly do you want to go participate in fellowship with the idols? Are you thinking, well, it's a good thing it's not like that today? Well, I brought along research. Bhagavad Gita, this is the Hindu scriptures. I've noticed that Christians in Christian churches have taken a love and liking for yoga. And they're claiming that there's no religious significance. It's just like the Corinthians, the idol is nothing. This doesn't hurt, matter, doesn't hurt, it's just exercise. It's just fellowship. Do you see any connection here? Can you fellowship with the idol? There's, there's no big deal. 
And 10 years ago, I wrote about this and quoted some of the yogis. No one is not the Yankees catcher who's in, <laughs> who played in the 60s, but these, 60s, but these Hindu teachers, they're saying, no, you can't separate the yoga from the religion. So here in the Hindu scriptures, it talks about what this all means. Here's a quote. They had these little sayings that so-and-so said, and then an answer. Arjuna said, oh, Madhushudana, the system of yoga which you have summarized appears impractical and unendurable to me, for the mind is restless and unsteady. Now I'm going to quote the answer. The system of mysticism described by the Lord Krishna to Arjuna, beginning with the words Sukhau Deseo, whatever, and the ending with Yogi Parama, here being rejected by Arjuna out of a feeling of inability. It is not possible for an ordinary man to leave home and to go to a scheduled place in the mountains or jungles to practice yoga in this age of Kali. So they go on and describe the necessity to shut off the mind and to overcome these modern distractions and go practice yoga. The point of it is to silence the mind. So there's many other quotes, but I think you might get tired of those. So here's a real issue facing Christians today. Is it okay to go practice yoga down at the Y? Based on Paul's teaching, I'm saying no, because what fellowship has light with darkness? You go into Target, dear ones, and it says yoga mats. Try to buy an exercise mat. You can't find one. You can only find yoga mats. 1 Corinthians 10, 20, and 21. No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to be sharers or fellowshippers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord in a cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord in the table of demons. Notice in green, I have demons every time it shows up in this text. Now, this is based on the Song of Moses. Okay. Dan, could you look up Deuteronomy 32, 17? And I have here the Septuagint of Isaiah 65, 3. I could not find an English Septuagint, so I printed out the Greek, parsed it, and made my own translation. Here it is. Okay, Deuteronomy 32, 17. They sacrifice to demons who were not God, to gods whom they have not known. New gods who came lately, whom your fathers did not dread. Okay, 
a sacrifice to demons. So Paul is making that claim that the fellowship down at the pagan love feast is actually fellowship with demons. Oh yeah, maybe the idol is just a statue, but it represents the demons, which are real spirit beings that have harm in mind. When people go practice Eastern religion and Eastern meditation, they shut off their mind and then they come to this knowledge that all is one and karma and so on. This is demonic. It's real and it's demonic. And God forbids it for our own good. Now, Isaiah 65.3 in the Septuagint also mentions demons in the context of forbidden sacrifices. And let me just quote my own translation of it. This people provoke me through all they sacrifice in the gardens and burn incense on the bricks to the demons, which are non-existent. Okay, so then what is Isaiah 50, 65, 3 saying? If they're demons and they're non-existent, how can they be actually be demons and be non-existent at the same time? All right, I think here we see theology that we need to know, okay? The demon is a spirit being that's had been created and is fallen. Demons are fallen, evil spirits. So they have real existence. But they do not exist as God. They are not deities because they're created not eternal. They're contingent, not non-contingent. So they do not have the essential attributes of deity, though they might be called gods. I'm letting that sink in. Any questions or comments? Well, the passage is Isaiah 65, 3, but I've been quoting it from the Septuagint, which I translated into English. It's in the Septuagint where it mentions demons. They sacrifice to demons. But even in the, our English versions of Deuteronomy 32, 17, it mentions demons. So here we have a warning to be taken seriously. Yoga is so widespread that many who claim to be Christians participate with no thought that they are communing with demons and practicing Eastern mysticism. When I debated with Doug Padgett, that was one of the issues we debated. The emergent church practices yoga. Doug claimed the right to do this, and actually it helped you get closer to God. But I say there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, and that that only through him must we come to God. 
All right. One more slide. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than he, are we? Now, again, we have an allusion to the Song of Moses, which is found in Deuteronomy 32. Then he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end shall be. This is Deuteronomy 32, 20. Deuteronomy 32, 20. For they are a perverse generation. Remember when Eric has lately been talking about this generation? That idea goes all the way back to the Old Testament. They are a perverse generation, sons in whom there are no faithfulness, or there is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is not God. They provoke me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. Quoting Gordon Fee again. Those who have put God to the test by insisting on their right to do what God insists is idolatry are in effect taking God on, challenging him by their actions, daring him to act, securing their own foolishness or foolhardiness. They think of themselves as so strong that they can challenge Christ himself. But their folly implied in the exhortation of 925 and given in the warning of 1012 is that they will thereby fail to gain the final eschatological prize. They put God to the test. Are we stronger than God? Then we shouldn't put him to the test. Any comments or questions? Uh, Paul. It's on, okay. Uh, Back in 1980, when it came up from Tennessee to Minneapolis, I was attracted to a group called Koinonians. And much of what, when I heard that word, that this is great, uh, what we've been talking about today, later to find out that they no more were in Scripture than anybody. There was just a name that they used, and they were a fellow, they were just a social group, and that was about it. Um, they, They did some ritualistic kinds of stuff, but it wasn't there. So, um, although we use of the word doesn't prove the reality, right? Exactly, yes. it's the proclamation of the gospel that leads us to fellowship in Christ. So, I'll bring the mic to Eric. I really like the emphasis that you've had, Bob, in the shares, the koinonia idea, because it really brings up this idea of identity. And I was thinking back in uh, remember in Matthew three. John the Baptist promises that when Christ comes, he's going to baptize us in the Spirit. Amen. And so we're in the sphere of the Spirit when Christ leaves. And the Spirit baptizes us in the sphere of the body. So it's about identity. We're with Christ. We're with his body. And this idea of identity is emphasized in baptism. We're dead with Christ. We're with him. We're also raised with him. We're with him. We're with God's people. And the problem then with going to the demons and their table is now all of a sudden we're identifying with them. Yeah. And what Paul is saying is, wait a minute, which people are you a part of? Which table are you a part of? Are you going to identify with them? And so a lot of this has to do with identity. Amen. And um, again, baptism, ironically, is one of our means of grace. It's just one that we do one time. So I was just yeah. thinking about it, that idea of identity. It's show, in fact, 
it shows that you're separated from the world. But then in 1 Corinthians 10, 1, it's warning us not to just make the um, means of grace sacramental and then trust them rather than Christ. Right. Yeah, well said. Thank you. Okay, yep. so let's close with prayer. Thank you, Lord, that we have the gospel and we have Christian fellowship and unity. Pray that you give us uh, a desire to continue to walk in the light as you're in the light and have fellowship with one another. In Jesus' name, amen.